Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, a survey of researcher salaries and the test to shield Earth from killer asteroids. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. The pandemic has impacted almost every part of society and has had profound impacts on how we work. The world of science has been no different, and nature has been tracking the latest twists and turns for scientists through an annual careers survey. Here's reporter Julie Gould with more. Over the last 10 years, the Nature Careers team has been running a salary and satisfaction survey. We are asking scientists from all different parts of the career spectrum about their experiences. This is Chris Wollstone, a journalist. He's been involved with the study since 2016, helping to set it up and then analysing the results that come in. And in this survey, we didn't just ask about salary or job satisfaction. We also asked questions about mental health. We asked questions about burnout, issues of diversity and inclusion, which is increasingly important. And I think that we really got a good look at what it means to be a scientist in this world, whether you're in Australia or the US, whether you're in biology or physics, there's a lot of similarity and a lot of problems that we all need to be aware of. This year, the survey attracted self-selected responses from more than 3,200 working scientists, spanning all disciplines and countries and a mix of genders. Surveys like this are useful because they shine a light on issues in the system that can be changed and improved for the scientific workforce. So let's take a look at some of the successes and problems that come into play in the life of a scientist. Firstly, a big one, salaries. Chris says that the 2021 survey showed that salary satisfaction has increased since the survey was last done in 2018. A majority of respondents are actually satisfied with their salaries, 52%. And that may not seem 
all that impressive, but it's an increase over previous surveys. For instance, in 2018, only 43% were satisfied with their salaries. So there has been a bit of an uptick in that. And we see that people are making more as a group than they used to. One third of respondents reported making more than 80,000 US dollars a year, which is up from about 23% in 2018. Now, this all sounds great so far, but it is worth looking at the opposite end of the spectrum. Almost one in five say that they make less than 30,000 US a year and 9% make less than $15,000 a year. And when you look closer at that, 7% of full professors say they make less than $15,000 a year, which is something that is just really shocking to think about. And I think that we need to pay attention to people like that. 7% of full professors who responded to the survey make less than $15,000 a year. I wondered whether being able to see this comparison would be difficult for those who are at the lower end of the pay scale. Edmund Sangagnado is a marine scientist at the University of Shantou in the Guangdong district of China. He did his PhD in the USA, held a lecturer position in his home country of Zimbabwe, and then moved to China for the postdoc and assistant professor roles. His salary decreased with every new career move until he became an assistant professor. His current salary is comparable to his salary as a PhD researcher in the US. Edmund says that, although this might sound disheartening, you need to think of your bigger picture. So I don't really compare myself with what others are getting, but kind of like trying to look at the context that I'm living in. Yeah, so like what I noticed, uh, especially when I include the cost of living aspect, then uh, research grant opportunities and all those things, I noticed that even though it's very low compared to other places, right, uh, I find it's, it's, um, it's so, it's, what can I say, it's okay, right, uh, with, uh, with my, my, where I'm living, the cost of living, I'm living in a small town, so the cost of living is not that much in the salary, so you can actually plan ahead, give some savings and those kind of things, so it's, it's, it's fine. As a PhD student, even though the salary was high, it was not enough for a single individual. Because of that, I ended up in, you know, signing up for those um, programs, federal programs for low-income families. So that's, what I, that's how I ended up surviving as a PhD student. Yeah. So even though his salary isn't high, Edmund isn't unsatisfied with it. But his career prospects aren't satisfying. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a significant dent in his research funds, which has made it difficult to continue at the pace that is required for his role. And this is in line with the results from the survey, says Chris. We had 58% of our respondents said that they were satisfied or very satisfied with their current positions, which is the lowest number we've ever had in this survey. Just a few years ago in 2018, that number was 68%. And the majority of people who took the survey said that their satisfaction with their job has actually gotten worse over the last year. And 58% satisfaction level is not that impressive given the amount of work that these people do, the amount of training that they've had, the amount that they've invested in their lives. That's quite a few people who are unsatisfied despite everything that they've put into this. And since it's moving in the wrong direction, that's a number that we should be concerned about. The drop in job satisfaction, despite the increase in salary satisfaction, might seem contradictory. 
But Lizzie Knight, a researcher and professional careers counsellor at the University of Victoria in Australia, isn't surprised. In fact, she thinks this could be indicative of a much bigger change in the world of work. I think this um, has been, that the pandemic has been the biggest kind of um, change to career thinking since women in the workforce. People not being as worried about the number that their salary is, more worried about the kind of career satisfaction, how career impacts your life. And so I think that that lowest career satisfaction is not surprising when you think of um, how people are thinking about their engagement in the world, um, which, you know, I think this is a seismic shift. This seismic shift as a result of the pandemic, she says, is predicted to be leading towards something that has been labelled the Great Resignation by professionals and organisational psychologists around the world. And there are three main factors in career satisfaction that are driving this. Lack of movement over the last two years, conditions of work changing during the pandemic and showing they can be changed. And three, more attention to sort of life-wide ways of um, thinking about your life and work contribute to a prediction that 2022 will be um, a period of great change and um, a market in which the the people will have the choices to make um, and change the labour market, really. Beyond any seismic shift in how people think about the world of work, Chris Woolston noted that many of the survey trends are still negative. And I think everyone needs to be aware of those trends. And everybody who is involved in the scientific system needs to do what they can to turn things around. So what's the recommendation? How can these things be reversed? Anything that could improve job security would be a huge benefit. And it's possible that that also requires a difference in the way that people are educated. And the PhD pipeline needs to be diversified. I think that PhD students need to have a more diverse idea of what their options are. Julie Gould there reporting on Nature's Careers Survey. You also heard from Chris Woolston, Edwin Sanganiado and Lizzie Knight. You can find links to a series of stories all about the survey in the show notes. Coming up, we'll be hearing about a spacecraft that's going to slam into an asteroid on purpose. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read by Dan Fox. A simple click of the fingers boasts some complex physics. The arm loads up energy and then releases it explosively so that the middle finger hits the palm with a sharp smack. Now a team has shown that the process is dependent on the friction of human skin. Researchers filmed volunteers clicking their fingers while wearing nitrile gloves, then altered conditions to see how it changed the snap. When a water-based moisturizer was spread on the gloves, the fingers slipped too easily to store up sufficient energy. Too much friction was a problem as well. Rubber gloves were better than the nitrile ones at storing energy, but the extra friction hampered the release, slowing the middle finger and dampening the snap. The softness of skin also plays a part. When the researchers added copper thimbles under the nitrile gloves, the thumb and middle finger couldn't be compressed to improve their contact area, and the snap lost much of its characteristic crack. If that highlight was just too snappy, you can read the research in full in Journal of the Royal Society Interface. Many spiders use their silk to make webs, 
But jumping spiders, instead of crafting complex structures, leave a trail of silk as they jump from surface to surface. Now researchers have investigated these hastily spun threads and found that they are among the toughest silk that spiders produce. The team filmed the zebra jumping spider with high-speed cameras as it leapt across 3cm gaps. The research also collected the silk left behind to test its mechanical properties. Even though the spider unspooled its silk at 500 to 700 millimeters per second, it was tough. In fact, the second toughest spider silk yet discovered, a finding the researchers called extraordinary given the high speeds it was produced at. The researchers hypothesized that the jumping spider might have evolved to spin such tough silk to control its jumps. If that research has caught you in its web, read it in full in Current Biology. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat, where we discuss a couple of articles that have been highlighted in the Nature Briefing. Shamini, what have you found for us to discuss this week? A very dramatic, some might say cinematic story, written up in an article in Nature, and it's about NASA's plans to crash a spaceship into an asteroid. (laughs) Okay, so the way you phrase that makes it sound intentional. So what are the reasons that NASA are crashing a spacecraft into an asteroid. Grand and exciting reasons. So this is a bit of sort of future-proofing, starting to test something that we hope we won't need very soon. But the idea is to find out whether, by smashing a spacecraft into an asteroid, we could actually change the course of an asteroid, with one day the possibility being that we might need to do that if there was, for example, an asteroid on a collision course with Earth. Oh, I see. That makes a lot of sense. So... Well, when's this happening and how much do you need to, I guess, push an asteroid away to save the Earth from a potential killer? Well, you'll be glad to know that they're not testing it on any actual killer asteroids, nor are they anticipating any imminent killer asteroids. But of course, much as the probability of a huge asteroid coming and hitting Earth might be very, very low, that doesn't mean it might not happen. So they want to be ready. And this is basically just a first try to see if it's even possible. So, you know, how much you would need to move the asteroid would depend on where it's pointing and and how much it weighs. But they have picked an innocent rock somewhere away from Earth that poses no threat at all to test out this sort of collision nudging mechanism and are planning to launch this spacecraft today possibly depending on when you're listening to this podcast listeners but 23rd of november was the the planned launch date and then in sort of less than a year from now it will hopefully slam into this asteroid and nasa will be there looking at whether the asteroid changes course by how much and what kind of debris is is flung out from this collision Well, I guess the questions I have are sort of about the practicalities of this. How much does it cost to launch a spacecraft towards an asteroid? And how big and heavy does it have to be to actually change its course? Yeah, so um, this this poor spacecraft, which is called DART, um, which stands for... (laughs) That's a brilliant backronym that someone's invented. That's great. (laughs) I love it. So, um, yeah, so it, it stands for... The double asteroid redirection test, because there are actually a pair of asteroids that it's going towards, but it's only one of them that it's going to try and sort of nudge. This spacecraft is about the size of a car, weighs just over 500 kilograms, and is slamming into a much bigger rock. So the asteroid uh, Dimorphos, they have named it, 
is about 160 meters wide, so significantly bigger, but they're only trying to nudge it in its trajectory a little bit. And they're also sending this sort of little probe, which is basically following Dart, um, is then going to photograph them crashing into each other and look at the sort of debris and, and how Dart sort of breaks up and things like that. Well, I guess this makes our future a little bit more certain then if uh, we can potentially defend against asteroids well this is literally the first time that they've tried something like this so i mean it's good it's reassuring to know that they're they're sort of uh, making plans for those unlikely but potentially deadly scenarios so i think there will actually have to be a lot more spaceships sadly crashed into asteroids to kind of really test how it works and how it might work on different asteroids as well well quite promising news there Sharmini. it's it's always quite nice to have the future of humanity maybe a slightly (laughs) bit safer in the briefing chat Uh, but for my story i'm bringing this back down to earth and i've been looking at how baby formula is becoming more human. More human. Oh my gosh. I'm envisioning sort of all sorts of strange human milk producing uh, (laughs) devices. Is this supposed to be a way to improve baby milk formula? Yeah, so my tongue was firmly in my cheek there when I was saying that. This is actually about making baby formula much closer to being like human breast milk. And so it's recommended by the WHO and you know, medical authorities, that breast milk is really good for babies. But not everyone is able to use breast milk or, you know, they may choose not to. And so what several scientists have been doing and many companies in this space, they've been trying to make the formulas that we have to give to babies much more resembling human breast milk. How complex is breast milk and how sort of close at the moment or traditionally is the formula stuff that you get to the original milk so what's been used at the moment is mostly based on cow's milk because cow's milk is very accessible and it's easy to mass produce human breast milk is much much different to this and it's actually really really complicated there's a lot we don't know about human breast milk One of the major differences between it and cow's milk and the infant formulas that are around at the moment are these molecules called human milk oligosaccharides, which are like sugars that form the milk. And they make up a large component of the solid part of the milk. And there are actually 150 different types of these and they're all very complicated and like subtly different and very long branch molecules. And that means it's very difficult to actually make them in the lab and also to then study them so we can see what it is they do. But because there seems to be so much investment from humans to actually make so many different types, scientists figure that they're probably important. You'd kind of think that with something so sort of common and easily produced, scientists would have already done their analysis and been like, yep, here are the molecules in it. Yep, we're just going to recreate these. But it sounds like there are two different problems, both figuring out what is actually in it, all the different molecules, and then trying to recreate them. Yeah, so the human milk oligosaccharides have been identified, but they're really hard to study because they're very hard to separate from one another. So when you're trying to separate molecules in the lab, you might spin them or something to separate them out. But the trouble with these molecules is they're all quite similar, but they're just subtly different. So it's really hard to distinguish them. And also because they're quite complex molecules, it's very hard to chemically synthesize them in the lab. So it's been difficult to study them. In terms of infant formula, so far only two of these 
human milk and oligosaccharides have been put into the infant formula one called 2FL and one called lacto-N-neotetraose. All these molecules have real fun names like that. <laughs> so these have been added to certain formulas since 2015, and they seem to be having some positive effects. So, for example, they seem to improve the digestion. So there have been studies done, and I don't envy the scientists doing this, that have been looking at babies' poo. And uh, the poo of babies fed with breast milk versus normal formulas is usually quite different. But when you add these human milk oligosaccharides, it becomes much more similar to that of the breastfed babies. So the digestion seems to be improved by it. And also, we don't fully understand what all these molecules do, but scientists believe that they're quite involved with immune responses as well. So it could be helping the babies have a better immune system. So there are two of them in formulas at the moment but that's out of loads that they keep discovering? It's out of loads that we know of. And yeah, that's the idea. People are trying now to synthesize more and more of them and just try to make the formula more and more human-like. So there's been several different ways that have been proposed. Like one of the main ones is to use bacteria to produce these human milk oligosaccharides. So you can basically get a bunch of bacteria or yeast and you can put them in vats in lab, give them food, and then they will produce all the different kinds of molecules if you've sort of genetically engineered them to do so. It's not trivial, but it's an economically feasible way in the future. But what some other researchers have been doing is they've been using human cells to produce breast milk as well. So you can get the cells that produce milk in humans, and then you can put them in the lab, give them nutrients, and you can get them to essentially spit out something very similar to human breast milk. Wow, that's that's more kind of what where I thought this story was going when we started <laughs> off. So this could then be like the, the future of milk formula production. Yeah, well, it would be great if it was available and to give parents more choice on what they could feed their babies. And if it resembles human milk a bit more, you get all of these benefits whilst also being able to choose to use different things. And also, it may be able to be used to help with certain diseases. So there's a disease that affects infants called necrotizing enterocolitis. And there have been studies that have shown that breastfed babies don't suffer from this as much as those that have been fed formula. So potentially this could help with things like that. So it is it's quite promising. And, you know, in the future, there could be a variety of different options for parents to use and, you know, better and more options for parents can only be a good thing. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. And where can we go to read more about this? So this was an article in Chemistry World and it was a particularly interesting article because it was written by a mother who found that she was unable to produce breast milk and so that's why she was sort of writing this article which is quite interesting. So that story and the other story that you discussed about the smashing into an asteroid will be in the show notes. So if anyone wants to read more about that they can find them there. Well, great. Thanks, Nick. And we found both of those stories in the Nature Briefing, which basically delivers some of the most exciting stories of the week from the world of science straight to your inbox. So you can find a sign up link for that in the show notes as well. That's it for the show this week. As always, don't forget if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're on Twitter at Nature Podcast, or you can send us an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.